Sure. Okay. That's the price of being a musician. I'm hearing that and it's difficult for me to, I'm here, but I'm like, <laughs> to the melody. But anyhow, we'll try our best. So, so today the idea was to share a few words, uh, as you may know, or for those of you who do not know, we, for the last weeks here in Mayapur, and for me for the last almost half a year, I've been traveling and sharing different topics in connection to the book that I recently published, and I plan to share some quotes from it. It's called Radical Personalism, uh, which is my, so to say, my own way of addressing, my own way of saying Gaudiya Vaishnavism, you know, another way of saying Gaudiya Vaishnavism. We are personalists, but also radically personal, going to the root of what personalism means. What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean that God is a person? What was the potential of such two people relating to one another through the most personal of all dealings, which is love? So for me, that's radical personalism. And there are many implications of that. And we have been touching upon some of them throughout this week and the last week. And today we want to address one particular point, which is connected to how we relate to this particular aspect of Krishna's energies called material world, material energy, Maya Shakti, you name it. Uh, so how we are expected to navigate the apparent, apparent dichotomy between spirit and matter. Is there such an actual divide? Is there something that we need to re reject? Or can we integrate everything into a higher synthesis, into a higher equation? So I'd like to start by reminding each of us, myself including, which is the definition of bhakti that we are given in our Gaudiya Sampradaya. There are many, many verses, many ways of speaking about bhakti, many definitions. And one of the main ones will be the definition given by Srila Rupa Goswami in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Anyabila Sita Sunyam Gyan Karmadinavritam Anukulil Krishnanu Silanam Bhakti Rutama. You did Bhakti Shastri, you have to know that one. <laughs> and even if it was 11 years ago, you have to remember that one. <laughs> because that's a very important verse. Basically, there Rupa Goswami is delineating what we are supposed to be doing. <laughs> and it's a very precise definition. It's a definition that somehow leaves no room for confusion about what's the a unique form of bhakti we want to embrace. Because there are different forms of bhakti, different, even Vishwanatha Goretaku will speak in terms of Satviki bhakti, Rajasik bhakti, Tamasi bhakti, we have Sakam bhakti, bhakti with ulterior motives, and so many degrees, so many ways of classifying. So Rupa Goswami is talking about Uttam bhakti, which means topmost bhakti. And of course, I won't enter into the details of each word and what that verse means because that's a lot. But briefly, he's mentioning Uttam Bhakti means that's Tatastal action. The secondary qualities of this is free from all ulterior motives, 
freedom of separate desires and not being covered by gyan or karma and so on. And then, anukulina krishnana silanam bhaktirutama. A favorable engagement to give pleasure uh, to Krishna, basically. Yes, don't be so happy so quickly. You die. <laughs> so my main point here is that Rupa Goswami says that the bhakti we are invited to practice in our tradition is not about jnana. It's not about karma. It's not about uh, exploiting the resources of the environment. It's not about exploiting this world, but it's not also about renouncing this world. It's about addressing this world in the context of bhakti, which means in the context of dedication, devotional service. So what my point is, is our practice is not about rejection. Our practice is not about renunciation. If you go to the different limbs of bhakti that Rupa Goswami enunciates, he mentions 64 aspects, angas of bhakti. There are more, but he summarizes them in 64. And in any of those, you will find renunciation as something that you need to do. No, you, you won't find their brahmacharya. You won't find their sannyas. You won't find their vairagya, uh, vairagya, hmm? renunciation, detachment as a process. You won't find their mukti as a goal. Those are other processes. No? Jnana takes to mukti, vairagya, renunciation, detachment, etc. Celibacy. But in bhakti, I mean, you can be celibate, no problem. You can be a sannyasi. I am one. <laughs> but that's not a prerequisite. You don't need to. You can attain perfection in any situation. No matter which situation you are in this world, you can practice bhakti from there. So, our goal is bhakti, as we were talking these days. Our practice is bhakti. Our goal is bhakti. That's interesting. Very important point. We don't practice bhakti for something different than enhanced, upgraded bhakti. Bhaktiya sanjataya bhaktiya, says the Bhagavatam. Bhakti comes from bhakti, and bhakti tends towards further bhakti. That shows the supremacy of bhakti. If bhakti wouldn't be supreme, the goal of bhakti will be something else apart from bhakti. And that goal will be superior to bhakti. But that's not the case. The goal of bhakti is bhakti. <laughs> so our goal is not mukti. Our goal is not re renouncing, rejecting, leaving this world, technically speaking. Our goal is prem. And prem, by its very definition, doesn't care at all for mukti. That's what Shastra is saying. Moksha laguta krit, will say Rupa Goswami. The symptom of bhava bhakti, not even prem, bhava bhakti is moksha or mukti, Liberation from samsara is deemed as insignificant. That's in Baba Bhakti. In Prem Bhakti, you, you forgot about mukti or leaving this world. You are completely immersed into divine love. So, I'm mentioning this point just to make clear that our tradition is not about renunciation. It's about Bhakti, and renunciation will come as a byproduct of Bhakti. 
That's the only renunciation we will welcome. Vasudevi Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayoita Janayati Subairagyam Janam Chayadahaitukam. The Bhairagya that comes as a consequence of bhakti, that's the renunciation we accept. It's a byproduct of bhakti. We don't look renunciation for its own sake. Rupa Goswami said that can make the heart hard like a rock. And we want to melt the heart to make it like, like ghee. Sometimes the example is given, or like honey, madhus neha, grikritas neha, to be something completely liquid, melted, flowing, not a rock. It's already a rock. We are in the process of melting the rock somehow or other, putting the iron bar in the fire, so to say. So I'm saying this because sometimes, inadvertently, uh, we, we, some of us, I'm not saying all of us, hopefully not, but some of us may develop this aversion toward everything that is material. This world, as material world, something bad that needs to be rejected and needs to be abandoned as soon as possible. I'm not saying that's a Siddhanta, I'm saying we may feel like that sometimes. <laughs> but actually that's not the Siddhanta. Because again, Bhakti is not about rejecting anything. Sometimes by, by developing, and, and today we will talk about that, by developing some aversion toward matter, we end up developing is a rejection towards everything that is connected to that. If matter is bad, my, the world is bad, my body is bad, my mind is bad, my emotions are bad, my wife is bad, my husband is bad, my family, family life is bad, it's a dark well. <laughs> You have the dark well of family life, you also have the dark well of monastic life, just in case. Everything can become a dark well. That doesn't mean everything is a dark well. You can make a dark well of everything and anything. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that family life is a dark well or anything for that matter. Mm -hmm. So, sometimes we become so world-denying world religion, as sometimes it is said, and we end up developing some trauma against matter, and we end up practicing what I call sometimes disembodied spirituality. We are practicing, but we are completely at odds with our body, with our mind, with our psychology, emotions, like developing some sense of, I don't want to coexist with all this. <laughs> because we perceive all that as something ontologically bad. <laughs> uh, so I'd like to share a few words today, hopefully trying to deconstruct that myth so we can engage in bhakti in a more uh, user-friendly way, more sustainable way. And actually, the, the last chapter of, of my book has been all about that. It's the longest chapter of the whole book. And there is so much to say about it. So I will touch upon some points. I'd like to share a few quotes also from Shastra. So you realize that I'm not making this up. That's, that's there in our tradition. So again, our tradition is not about rejecting the world. It's not about thinking that this world is false. That's the tradition. That's Advaita Vedanta. They will say, Brahma Sati Jagan Mitya. They will say the world is false. Only Brahman is real. But we won't say that. We won't say the world is false. This world is an energy of Bhagavan. To say the world is false is to say the energies of God are false. That's not very... <clears throat> 
in a glorifying spirit, so to say. So we don't want to reject this form, we want to integrate. On the bottom say, One will attain perfection in bhakti. Who? He who is not too attached and he who is not too detached. If you become too attached to everything in a selfish way, you lose sight of Krishna as the center of reality. If you become too detached from everything, you lose sight of how this world is an energy of Bhagavan that can be engaged in his service, basically. So again, Bhakti is not about rejecting. Bhakti is about integrating, integrating everything, putting everything into proper perspective, seeing everything in connection to Krishna. And this includes everything, our body, our mind, our emotions, anything. Srila Jiva Goswami will use the term Sangha Siddha Bhakti, which means interesting, it's a very important concept. He speaks about different forms of Bhakti. Swarup Siddha Bhakti means those practices of Bhakti that are inherently Bhakti. Even if you practice them unconsciously, without knowing, that's Bhakti and that's blessing you. Kirtan, Bhagavad Shravan, Sadhu Sangha, all these main angas of Bhakti. They're bhakti inherently, so to say. But there are other practices who are not bhakti, like know, peeling potatoes. Peeling potatoes is not bhakti. But you can peel potatoes in the context of bhakti and make that part of your bhakti. So by sangha, by association, all these practices can, can attain perfection in bhakti. That's called sangha siddha bhakti with Jiva Goswami. By association, any practice, any situation, everything can be connected to bhakti. So, interestingly, that's a good point also. We could say, okay, so we should engage matter in, bhakti, in service to Krishna. But technically speaking, following what Krishna says in the Gita, matter is already engaged in service to Krishna. He's saying what? Mayadyakshina prakriti. Nice chapter. This energy is working under my direction, Krishna is saying, when he refers to material energy. So he indicates material energy is serving me. It's already serving Krishna. So we don't need to take material energy to serve Krishna. It's already serving Krishna, we could say. It's a Shakti of Shakti Mam working under his, are working under his direction. Can you hear me or is it too much? Let's be honest. Yeah? We are falling asleep for the sun in your face or something? No? Sun in your face, not, not creating some, some samadhi? Okay. <clears throat> so I would like to share you one quote from Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur in his commentary to the Srimad Bhagavatam, second canto, verse 7, sorry, chapter 7, verse 53. He says something very interesting in relation to how material energy is serving Bhagavan. This Shakti is serving his source. It says, one should have faith that the material energy is a devotee with the greatest devotion. And therefore, a devotee should hear about such a devotee. We should hear about 
Maya Shakti. Since the Lord's Leela in relation to Maya is not Maya. So the Leela of Krishna in relation to Maya is not Maya, not illusion. Instead, it is something transcendental. So here by Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur is describing Maya Shakti as a devotee with the highest devotion. Imagine. So if, if you think that the world of matter is crap, <laughs> you are criticizing a devotee with the greatest devotion. You are committing Vaishnavi Yaparad. I'm, I'm sure you, you don't want to engage in that. <laughs> so be careful about how we, let's be careful about how we treat matter, how we relate to matter, because it's a devotee with the highest devotion according to Vishwanath it's a Shakti, again, it's a potency engaged in the service of Shakti Mam, of the source of all potencies. And as we are seeing, and that, and that potency is dedicated to serve her master. Probably way more than we are dedicated to serve Krishna. <laughs> we could reach that conclusion. Maya Shakti is serving Bhagavan more, with more steadiness than the steadiness I have in serving Bhagavan. So I should offer pranam to this senior devotee, senior Vaishnavi, not offending. Another way of perceiving the, the sacredness of matter will be to, as we talk these days, to realize about the presence of God everywhere. Sometimes we, we forget that. Of course, our tradition specializes in, let's talk about Lila and Krishna and Braj, Krishna being God beyond God. And that's beautiful in itself, but in order to properly enter into the realm of Lila and the domain of Gyansanya Bhakti and self-forgetfulness, first we have to be properly grounded in Tattva Siddhanta. And we need to be more acquainted with the Aishvarya side also of God. We have the Madhurya side, the intimacy, when Krishna forgets his God and he interacts lovingly with his devotees, but for Appreciating that properly and not take that as a just sentimental fairy tale or something like Romeo and Juliet or something because one we, we can do that. You can just hear Radha and Krishna's Lila and say like, oh, so so moving and you just may take it as a romantic tale. So to really appreciate that for what it is, first we need to have a foundation of who Krishna actually is. He's Aishvarya Sahib. We have to know Krishna as the Supreme Personality of Godhead, so someday we can forget that he's the Supreme Personality of Godhead. We can see him in intimate, loving terms, as they see him in branch. So one of the aspects of this Aishvarya is to realize Krishna is everywhere. Because sometimes we may think Krishna is over there, up, up in some planet above the clouds, and I'm here. And we create like such like distance ourselves. But if you study Shastra, you realize Krishna is, yeah, Golok Vrindavan is a spiritual planet. He's there, but he's everywhere also. <laughs> That's one of the attributes of God. And Krishna is something more than God, but he's also God. <laughs> As I like to say, Krishna is God beyond God. God is an aspect of Krishna, but still he's God. Plus, so Krishna's God means he's everywhere and he's Mokya Sambandha. Mokya Sambandha means everything has its primary relationship with Krishna. Hmm? 
nothing exists outside of a connection with the center. Krishna is the center of all reality and everything is orbiting around it, like all the planets around the sun. That's why Krishna sometimes is compared with the sun. Krishna, Surya, Sam, Maya, Haya, Andhakar, Jahan, Krishna, Dham, Nahi, Maya, Radhika. Krishna, Surya, he's like the sun. Around the sun, everything is in, else is moving and constellating and depending on. So everything is interrelated with the connection of Krishna in the center. That's Sambandha Gyan. So Krishna's everywhere. In some of his expansions, he's in every heart. He's in every atom. So if Krishna, if God is in every atom, how can we call matter profane or like whatever, bad? God is in every atom. Be careful with insulting Krishna in every atom. So to say. And if you say, no, that's not Krishna Maharaj, that's Paramatma. But you cannot make such a difference between Paramatma and Krishna. They are not two different people. Paramatma, Krishna, and Brahman, they are three expressions of the one same non-dual absolute. Advai Gyan. That's what the Bhagavatam teaches. That's another conversation, and we already talked about that. But we have to be careful when we speak about Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan, or even aspects of Bhagavan, forms of Bhagavan, Narsimhadev, Bhamandev, Kurmavatar, Matsya, Parasuram, Kalki, Mahaprabhu. All of them are the same person. Right? It's not that they are different people. They are the same. But we have to realize that. We have to relate to them, understanding, okay, this is the same absolute person. So Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan are different levels of approaching the same reality. So this supreme reality is in every atom. Again, so how can we consider this world is something bad? It's an obstacle. I mean, God is in every atom. How that can be an obstacle? That should be actually... It's an obstacle because we don't see God in every atom. <laughs> the obstacle is our lack of vision. It's not matter in itself. Matter is not ontologically bad against us. For example, in one comment in, in his Bhavarta Deepika, one of verse, one of his commentaries to the Bhagavatam, Sridhar Swami will say the Supreme Lord is the soul of all living beings, but also he is the soul of all inert beings. So he makes that point. And because we may think, yeah, Krishna is in the heart of every living entity. But here he's saying, he's in the heart of every inert being. Rama Samhita says the same. I think it's verse 35 or something. It says, Paramanu Chayantra Stam. Paramanu Chayantra Stam, yes. Which means Krishna, the, Brahma Samhita is praising Govinda Madhipurishan Tamaham Bajami. He's in every atom. The same thing I'm saying. The Supreme is in every atom. Of course, probably most of us are not seeing that way, because if not, we'll be just rolling on the ground in ecstasy at every step. Imagine just suddenly all the atoms start to, to play the flute. <laughs> or whatever form of God appears to show for arms, every atom is overwhelming. But for Shastra, we know that's a fact. Hmm? Like I was saying the other day, 
This is very clearly proven in the Leela of Narasimha Deva and Prahlad. Because Prahlad is an Uttam Bhakta, Uttam Bhagavat, highest type of devotee with the highest vision, which means he's seeing Krishna everywhere. Like Krishna says in the Gita, Jamam Pasyati Chamai Pasyati. He who sees me in everything and everything in me, I'm never lost to him, he's never lost to me. So Prahlad is seeing Krishna everywhere. Iranya Kashipu is seeing Krishna nowhere. Uh, himself, in himself in the sense of he thinks he's God. <laughs> so he's asking Prahlad, so where is your God? I'm going to kill you. So let's see, where is your God to protect you now? Is he even in that pillar? Here we have the pillar to enact the whole drama now. Yeah. So be careful if we die. Something may appear from that pillar at any moment, just in case. <laughs> So Irani Kachibu asked Prahlad, is God in that pillar? Do you see him in that pillar? And Prahlad was like, when he was asked, where is God? Prahlad said, where is he not? I'm seeing him everywhere. I don't see a place where he is not. Imagine the vision of the highest devotee. So the question will be opposite. He was like, ask, Daddy, ask me where Krishna is not. That's more challenging. <laughs> if you ask me where he is, it's game over because he's everywhere. I'm seeing him everywhere. So better you ask me where is he not. That will be more difficult for me. I can't find a place where he's not. <laughs> so as you know, Prahlad said, yeah, he's in that pillar. And we know the rest is story. The Shrimha did literally appear from a pillar, from atoms. The birthplace of Nishrimha Dev is a pillar. That's why Nishrimha Dev in his Bhagavan in his next avatars he decided to have always mother and father because that's another thing that came to my mind when, when he asked Prahlad do you want some blessing and eventually Prahlad asked for blessings for his father and Srim Hadev said I don't know what does it mean to have a father my father is a column so from now on I want to taste this rasa also but so from now on all my avatars will have mother and father <laughs> because yeah, it's not so much rasa with a column, so to say. <laughs> you won't call Nishimadev Stamba, Stamba Nandana, you know, the son of the column. You call Krishna Yashoda Nam, there's some reciprocation. But anyhow, my point was, God is present everywhere, even in an atom, and Prahlad confirmed that. He's in this group of atoms called a column, Nishimadev appeared. And Nishimadev was way huge, bigger than the size of the pillar. But he could appear, and he can make the impossible possible. So another tradition for us, God is transcendent, but he is also immanent. I don't know if you know these terms, and I don't want to torture you with too many new words. But immanent, immanent means God is present everywhere. And transcendent means God is beyond everything, simultaneously at the same time. Another word for this doctrine is panentheism. Panentheism. Not pantheism, not theism, but panentheism. Panentheism means God in everything. Pan means everything, in means in, and theism, theos, God. So God in everything. Achinte veda veda we can call it that way also, if you will. And this was shown by Krishna himself in the Lila. As we know, when, when he 
when he was playing with his friends and he was accused of eating dirt, and Yashoda called him and told him, open your mouth. And he said, no, no, I didn't do anything. I didn't eat any dirt. My friends are, are jealous of me or envious of me because I always defeat them in, in wrestling. So they are accusing me falsely. So Christian's lying twice here. Because first, he's never he's never defeating his friends. He's always defeated by Sridham and others. <laughs> and second, he actually ate dirt. So, so we, we worship a, a God who is a liar. <laughs> a what? A serial liar, non-stop, yeah. <laughs> but that's the highest truth for us. Now, he's also called the highest truth. Satyam, Trisatyam, Devatan, say he's all Satya, all is truth in him. So anyhow, so Yashoda says, so you have some, some earth in your mouth. Let me see, open your mouth. And she saw lots of earth. She saw whole planet earth. So technically speaking, Krishna didn't lie because she showed, he showed everything is inside of me. If everything is inside of you, you cannot take something outside from it because already. So Krishna didn't eat dirt because everything was already in him. So technically speaking, he didn't lie. <laughs> that, way, that way we can justify. So as we know, just show that, saw Krishna's mouth, inside Krishna's mouth, the whole cosmic manifestation was there. Inside that cosmic manifestation was Krishna. And inside that Krishna opening his mouth was the cosmic manifestation and so on and so forth. It was like kalidoscope. Kalidoscope is in English? Kalidoscope. Or you have this like dolls in Europe. How do you call them? Tatrushka, matrushka. Yeah. That you open and there's another one and you open and there's another. At one point it ends. With Krishna it didn't end. It was like. So basically, Yashoda had a darshan of this reality. Everything is inside of Krishna, but also Krishna is inside of everything, simultaneously. Mind-boggling, for sure. Hmm? So that's a very interesting idea. Hmm? Krishna in the 11th canto says, Buddha, the residence where I reside is transcendental. That place where I reside is transcendental. And of course, after all that we are talking now, you will conclude, well, he's everywhere. <laughs> so technically speaking, everywhere is transcendental. If I have the eyes to see. If I don't have the eyes to see, of course, I won't see anything. But if I have the eyes to see, I'm already there, so to say. I don't need to go anywhere. Something that comes to mind is one post that a few days ago, one devotee made saying something like, there is no love in this material world. Something like that. And I, I, it was interesting for me because, of course, I heard that a few times. And that could be some argument to say, no, this world is not good because there is no love in this material world. But, but what do you mean by material world? Do we mean this planet, this geographical location and say there is no love here? Because we know that there are so many great personalities who express divine love here. That's why we are here. That's our hope, so to say. So what do we mean then by material world in that case? If we say there's no love in this world, that there's so much, so many saintly people who exhibit love in this world. So what do we mean by material world? Then? Generally, we refer to particular state of consciousness. 
When we say material world, we are saying material consciousness. No? Distorted consciousness, self-exploitation. So in that, following the idea, material world becomes material consciousness. But there, if there is spiritual consciousness, then there is no longer material world. Then we have to start to speak in terms of spiritual world. You follow my point? So spirit, material world is not so much the planet, the geographical location, but the state of consciousness. And therefore, spiritual world is also the same thing. <laughs> you can be geographically located on planet Earth, but you can be in the spiritual world in your inner world. That's what we will say with very advanced practitioners. Internally, they are serving Krishna in the Lila. Mm -hmm. So that's an important point also mm -hmm. regarding material, what's material world, what's spiritual world. Mm -hmm. In other words, if we have the proper perspective, we will be able to find everything here in this world. Mm -hmm. We don't need to reject anything from this world. Let me, let me share one quote from Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur in this connection. This is a powerful one. I like it. For those who still are not fully convinced from what I'm saying, I still feel this world is full of things to reject. Okay. You are saying that to Prabhupada Bhakti Siddhanta, so fasten your seatbelt and hear the answer of the Lion Guru. <laughs> so he's saying, this universe is full of objects for the service of the master of this universe. Therefore, all these objects are adorable. Each of the material elements are truly favorable for Krishna's pastimes. And that is why when performing Arctic, the various elements that make up this world are represented there in the incense lamp, etc. In other words, this world is potential paraphernalia to be used in the service of the Lord. And thus, such items will first be offered to him and only newly honored by us. So that's Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta. <clears throat> the objects of this world are favorable for Krishna's pastimes, and therefore they have to be worshipped by us. <laughs> he gives this important help example of the arctic plate we have incense lamp water which represent earth water fire either air which all material world is made of that so all the material world is represented into these five elements in this plate and this world these elements are connected to offer to Krishna basically mm -hmm. that's what we call yukta vairagya in our own words yukta vairagya means proper renunciation that's the ultimate recycling process, I like to say. And there's nothing to reject, everything to recycle, everything to connect with Krishna, everything to offer in service. Rupa Goswami said, Yukta Vairagya. The only need to need, you need to reject is your lack of vision, your distorted vision. That needs to be rejected. I remember some, <clears throat> I visited Alacha in, I don't remember, Half a year ago, let's say, I don't remember the exact month. And uh, I was invited to give a copy of my book to Radhanath Swami. He was there those days. So it was nice meeting. I thought I will just meet with him, give the book and leave because he's 
very busy. So I thought, well, maybe a few minutes we will talk. I will end talk in like four hours or something. <laughs> and I canceled the meeting because I because so many people was waiting. What's happening inside that room? We want to then to talk. So, but it was very nice. At one point, he told me we were talking about something in connection to this. Like he mentioned something that Srila Prabhupada once said, because one devotee once went to Prabhupada and asked and told him, Prabhupada, for your sake, I'm willing, I'm willing to reject everything. So he presented his stance in terms of rejection. No? For your sake, I'm willing to reject everything. Like implying, except for you, everything can be rejected. Something like that. And Prabhupada replied, the only need you the only thing you need to reject the only thing you need to reject is the idea that you need to reject anything that's the only thing you need to reject the, the thought that something has to be rejected apart from that nothing needs to be rejected <laughs> but that's the same point we are talking about here nothing needs to be rejected except for our partial vision that makes a thing that many things have to be rejected. Everything is potential paraphernalia in the service of Krishna. And of course, someone here can bring some arguments. We want to entertain some Purva Paksha also, some opposing views. <laughs> some would say, well, but Krishna Maharaj, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita says, <clears throat> let's go to a famous quote. Krishna in the Gita says twice in different places, refers to this world as Dukhalayam Ashashvatam. That means uh, it's an abode of misery and it's temporary. So that doesn't sound too inviting. <laughs> like, welcome to this miserable and temporary place. And it's like, okay. <laughs> what to do here, right? And we will find some expressions in one way or another, like you're into a prison house and you're like brought here to whatever, to suffer your, the reaction of your previous misdeeds. We, we can receive ideas like that, but we have to understand those things in context because all that we have shared so far, that has to be put on the scale also. So Krishna says, I'm not willing to, to edit the Bhagavad Gita to avoid trouble. <laughs> But also then you have statements like, I don't know, Prabodhananda Saraswati will say in Chaitanya Chandramrita, Vishwam Purnam Sukhayati. The whole universe is an abode of joy. Imagine. So you have miserable and temporary, a full abode of, abode of joy. So it's not about, okay, I pick the second option. I pick number A. It's not about cherry-picking statements that I like more, but reconciling also apparent contradictions. That's that's a whole different conversation, but we have to know that Shastra is to be understood in that way. It's not like, I don't know, this verse says that, but then Urshila Prabhupada say one morning woke to one devotee this. So that's my main evidence for proving everything. And it's like, what if Prabhupada say the, the exact opposite things 300 times? Yeah, yeah, but I like that quote that he say on that morning walk. I stick with that one. That's my favorite. That's not how you, how we establish conclusive truths, right? So, again, if we have statements speaking about how beautiful, 
how glorious this universe is, Krishna in every atom, all matter being worshipable. Why Krishna saying this is miserable and temporary? <laughs> Actually, he's using certain language. He's not talking about this world is miserable, but he's talking about how miserable it is to be selfish in this world, basically. Because remember, material world means material consciousness. We mentioned that before. Material consciousness. So to have material consciousness, that's miserable. That will bring misery. To be short-sighted, narrow-minded, selfish, that's miserable for sure. That's material consciousness. That's material world. So Krishna is talking in those sections to those who are, how to say, too, too enchanted with the world but with a perverted view. So Krishna will say, will speak strongly about that to create some, you know, to disenchant us and protect us from ourselves. You know, the example I sometimes give is that of a child who wanted to put a finger on a plaque or something, doing some mischief. And the mother knows what's in his mind, and he he tries, and he's insisting. He's trying; she's trying to avoid, but he's insisting, and she knows he may be killed by that. <clears throat> so she will tell maybe the child, "The plague is bad. No? There is a dragon inside that. If you put your finger there, the plague will devour you completely. There's a monster." So the child is like, <laughs> she will like, okay. So, again, it was preaching strategy. You know, it was an emergency case. Child is saved. Eventually, when he grows, he doesn't need to, to understand the plug with that language. He can be, he understands and he won't put the finger. So, in the same way, sometimes Shastra will use some language like, that's bad. It's not that that's bad. It's like we are approaching that with the wrong intention, with the wrong consciousness. So, there is a language to prevent us and protect us from ourselves not from matter. Again, this is not bad, this is not against us. Remember, Maya Shakti is a Vaishnavi, serving Bhagavan. So how a Vaishnavi will be against Vaishnavas? <laughs> we are serving together, it's a teamwork. Of course, sometimes I will say it's easier to blame this world than to take responsibility for ourselves. It's easier to say, oh, Maya is bad, instead of saying, I take responsibility for my for choosing to approach this world from this place. No, it's easier to say, there's the devil there wanting to tempt me. Because sometimes we project this kind of Christian notion of the devil, so to say, to Maya Shakti. No? Like Maya is wanting to make me fall. That's not true. Again, we already share who is Maya Shakti. It's a Vaishnavi serving under the direction of Bhagavan. She's not like a bad lady trying to make us suffer and squeeze us out in this world and, and enjoying that in a sadistic way or something like that. She's a Vaishnavi of the highest order. So even if sometimes that language may be there here and there, again, it's for different purposes, but we are seeing who Maya Shakti is and how we have to take responsibility for our own decisions, basically. <clears throat> a few more things before wrapping up and going to Q&A if you have questions. A very nice sutra that I like to quote in this connection from the Vedanta Sutra, Brahma Sutra of Vyasadeva is Lokabhatu Lila Kaivalyam, which basically describes how all this material creation comes as a result of God's joy. 
which is very interesting. Of course, there is no beginning to the cycles of material creation, but Shastra describes like the background of the cycle of material creation, the cause behind that is Krishna's own bliss. And that bliss overflows and appears in the form of material creation. That's explained in this sutra. There's in, in the purport to this sutra, there's one verse that Baladevi Devotion shares in his commentary, very interesting. He quotes one from one scripture called Narayan Samhita and says, the act of creation on the part of God, as well as his other actions, does not depend on any motive. He does so out of sheer joy, as a drunkard dances through frenzy. So this verse is describing that the creation is performed out of sheer joy by Bhagavan, like a drunkard dancing in celebration. So in other words, Krishna is described as a drunkard, he is. He's drunk in love, in prem. That's the drunkness he has. He's intoxicated by divine love. And that's why, as we said the other day, that was his tribanga. No? Like when you are drunk, you, you don't walk straight. No? <laughs> when you are drunk, you're going like, like this. No? No? So he's crooked. He moves in a crooked way because he's bearing the weight of, of love. No? He's trying to hold the strength of so much intoxication that comes from divine love. So he's celebrating. He's, he's doing nothing but celebrating life. That's what we call Lila. Everything that Krishna does is Lila. Lila means the opposite of karma. Karma is, I act, it's like forced work. I act because I'm forced by the laws of nature and because I'm empty and I want to be fulfilled. Lila means the opposite. I'm so fulfilled that I cannot contain myself and I celebrate my fullness. And I'm, and I'm acting in that way. I'm not acting to be full, I'm acting because I'm full. <laughs> That's very different. Most people here are running here and they're trying to fulfill themselves. But those who are really fulfilled will be moving here and there, but just because of celebrating their fullness, dancing. That was Mahaprabhu. He was moving, he was doing things, Celebrating his fullness. That's Lila. So the creation of all this universe is a Lila. That's called Shristi Lila. Jiva Goswami says, Shristi, the Lila of creation. It's also a form of divine play. If we know the rules of the game, we can play the, the game. When we don't know the rules, we don't know how to play the game. And that's why we suffer and feel, this world is horrible. I'm suffering so much. That means you are not playing the game. You are not participating in Shristi Lila. You're just burning in samsara, so to say. <laughs> so samsara could be a word for, for those who do not who are not participating in Shristi Lila. Those who are just merely going from in the repeated cycle of birth and death without understanding its purpose. But when you learn the rules of the game, wow, that becomes exciting. But in order to play a game, you have to know the rules. Again, as I gave the example of the other day, if I tell you, let's play chess, and I start to move the pieces as I like without following the rules of the game, you will say, what are you doing, Mara? We cannot play. There, this is no fun. This is no funny, Mara. It's not interesting. Or let's say, let's play soccer. Now you may say, Mara's come from Argentina. That's the, the, the sport there. Let's play soccer. 
and I take the, the ball with my hand and I start to run off the, the field. And it's like, these are my rules of playing soccer. And I said, no, no, this, that's not the rule. There's no fun. We're not participating. But when you learn the rules, wow, that's fun. So Lila means play, but you have to know the rules for that to happen. So all this material cosmic creation is coming to points, coming out of the joy of Bhagavan. So if the cause behind this universe is the joy of Bhagavan, how this world can be bad? If all this cosmic creation is a byproduct of God's overflowing ecstasy, how this can be bad? And on top of that, Bhagavatam says, eighth chapter, many places, God creates this universe for the enjoyment of his lila. So not only this universe comes as a result of the enjoyment of his lila, but also this universe, especially planet Earth, comes for the enjoyment of his lila because he comes to planet Earth to perform his lila here over and over again. So how can this world be bad if Krishna comes to perform his lila perpetually? How, how bad such a place can be? Imagine if I tell you there is one place, apart from the spiritual world, there is one place that Krishna comes without stop to perform his lila forever. I don't think you will conclude oh, such a horrible place must be that one. On the contrary, it's like, what's that place? That place is where you happen to be right now. And it's like, oops, wow. <laughs> so that's... that's Christians has this interesting expression of kenosis. Kenosis, God's self-emptying. God empties himself and, appear, and the creation appears. We have a slightly different way of approaching, but it's the same principle. It's a way of connecting this creation with God's heart, so to say. So again, we have Sristi Lila on one side, we have Samsara on the other. You choose where to participate. If you understand the background, the purpose of this, there's every reason to celebrate and to play the game properly and to have fun, so to say. If we ignore the rules, okay, samsar, <laughs> that's that's the option. But Bhagavan is coming. And this is an interesting point. I don't know if you have thought about this. Uh, once I thought about that, I was like, wow. Krishna is coming, Mahaprabhu is coming. To perform his lila on earth, we'll say, okay, he came here on this planet earth 5,000 years ago. But of course, the scriptures are saying when he, Krishna concludes his lila on one planet earth, he starts that lila in another planet earth. And when that lila finishes, it starts in another planet earth. And then when that lila finishes, in other words, he's always eternally on planet earth. And if we aspire to serve him eternally, it is said that we serve him in Golok Vrindavan, but also you can serve him when he comes to this world. So if Krishna remains eternally in this world, and we are projecting to serve him eternally in this world, we will be eternal in this world. So that means that must not be a bad place. No? There must be something interesting about it. So better we start to make peace with matter now. <laughs> if our eternal prospect is in connection to this to planet Earth, better we are feel at home here also. 
you follow because if I'm, I want to leave this as soon as possible and then you realize oh Krishna is coming here over and over again and inviting me to join him so we have to properly integrate it be I mean our journey begins here but ends here again and we make full circle and okay Krishna is back here doing his Lila I'm with him I'm beginning my practice as a sadhaka from earth and everything begins from earth and also comes here <laughs> Like when Gopakumar reaches Golok Vrindavan and he's sent back to planet Earth to go to deepen to go deeper into his practice. <laughs> Interestingly. I mean that's there in Brihad Bhagavatam. I'm not making this up. So anyhow, I'm saying all this just to wrap up and conclude, because as I say before, for us bhakti is the means and the goal. Bhakti sadhana, bhakti satya. We don't want to go, we don't want to practice bhakti here like an as some form of evacuation plan hmm, for the afterlife. Like I'm practicing now here, so eventually the rocket ship comes and sends me straight to Golok, and I don't have nothing to do with this whatever damned place anymore. That's not bhakti. Bhakti means I'm practicing bhakti. I would like to practice bhakti forever. I don't care for mukti. The, the actual bhakti that I defined when we began the meeting Rupa Goswami, Anyabilashita Sunyam, Jnana, Karma, Adi, and Abrita means Bhutan Bhakti doesn't care for Mukti, doesn't care for leaving this world, leaving samsara or not. It's perfectly okay with remaining anywhere. That's what the Bhagavatam says. Narayana Parasarvi, Nakutashtana, Bhibhyati, Sarva, Pabharga, Narakeshua, Pitulartha, Darshanaha. For a devotee of Bhagavan, Narayan Sri Krishna. I mean, they are so much attached to bhakti that they don't care hmm? for swarga, for apabharga. Apabharga means liberation. They don't care for that. Hmm? Interestingly, there is even one verse in the Bhagavatam, 10th canto, chapter 83, verse 41. Rukmini is glorifying the devotees of Bhagavan, and she's saying to Krishna, your devotees are so high, which means are so much in love with devotion, that they don't care for bhukti, for mukti, for material enjoyment, for liberation, nor even for Hare Padam, she says. They don't care for the abode, of her, for your abode. In other words, they don't care about going to the spiritual world, which means they're already there. <laughs> In other words, if for serving you favorably, they have to remain perpetually on earth, they are okay with that. That's what Bhakti Thakur said. Bhakti Thakur prays saying, Oh, Bhagavan, if you want me to be an ant, an insect, I have no problem. As, as long as, as I remain engaged in bhakti, send me to whatever place and body you want. That's a secondary consideration for me. As long as I can serve your purpose in bhakti, send me there. <laughs> I only care to love you. Asamaho charanarino jasamahamsim. Uda prays similarly. I like to be a a vine, some little grass and branch. Brahma prays similarly. No, I don't care to take some birth, whatever birth in this Vrindavan. So that's a very unique idea if you try to meditate on that. Fact is, I mean, we are already, do, as I like to put it, we are already doing what we want to be doing for eternity. Because we are doing bhakti and we want to do bhakti for eternity. So we already are, do, uh, we should develop 
a lifestyle now and here that is sustainable in eternity, whatever it may be. Because in eternity, we don't want to be doing anything different from what we are doing now. Save with the exception that there is no cell phones in eternity. Sorry. <laughs> we were joking with Namrasa in, in our podcast, my last podcast, because he was like, it was about Bhakti and social media. We were saying like, well, there's no Wi-Fi in, in Golokbrun Down, so there's another Wi-Fi. No, divine love is the Wi-Fi there. But there's no internet, so better we get accustomed to live without that, because in eternity, no? <laughs> so anyhow, I want to make that point clear, no? That ultimately what you are engrossed and absorbed in Bhakti, you don't care for going anywhere. You already arrived when you had to arrive. And you will be already in the spiritual world in terms of consciousness, like Mahaprabhu being in Jari Khan. Now Mahaprabhu is traveling through this secular jungle, let's call it like that. I and mean, for us now, it's a holy place after this happened. <laughs> but before that, it was just a jungle in India, Jari Khan. Mahaprabhu went there, I'm sovereign Dhaban there. And you could say, you are delusional. Vrindavan is not here. You are kilometers, miles from there. But internally, his consciousness, he was there. Like when Srila Prabhupada, as we said the other day, when Srila Prabhupada was leaving Vrindavan to go to the West, and some people living in Vrindavan was telling him, they couldn't understand, like, Swamiji, why, why you are leaving Vrindavan? I mean... You are, I mean, you are in your in your last period of your life, no? You are 69 year old. Most people come to Vrindavan here to spend that time for it for the last rest of the, and you are leaving Vrindavan. Of course, they they couldn't understand that Prabhupada was not leaving Vrindavan, but he was extending Vrindavan everywhere. And those who thought that he was leaving Vrindavan, although they remain in Vrindavan physically. They were not in Vrindavan. Because if if you're in Vrindavan as a state of consciousness, you will know that those someone like Prabhupada is not living Vrindavan. You follow my point? So I, again, at the end of the day, what's Vrindavan? It's, it's, it's a mere geographical place. There is a like when Jiva Goswami, when Rupa Goswami recommends residing Mathura Bas, residing in Vrindavan, Jiva Goswami is quick to clarify. If you cannot reside there physically, at least you should do it in your mind. There's always, it, ultimately, it's an inner place, basically. So, again, we can be anywhere in this world, and we can be in Vrindavan. Vrindavan is a state of consciousness. As the material world is represents a state of consciousness, material consciousness. And Krishna himself validates this. Now, Krishna himself comes to teach us that this world is not bad, that we should learn to worship, as Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasvati Thakur said, you have to worship material objects. Krishna himself inaugurated in his Govardhan Lila the worship of nature, so to say. That I, let me share a quote in this connection. This is a nice quote from Srivatsa Goswami. He's a friend of mine. He's a very scholar, Acharya in the Radharaman tradition in Vrindavan. He's quoting the following, referring to, to Krishna worshiping Govardhan in the Govardhan Lila. 
So he says, the world, the world is the body of God, and all nature is divinized. Whereas for many Europeans, nature worship is regarded as primitive, the nature worship exemplified in the worship of Mount Govardhan is the highest form of worship. It is the highest form of religion. The Bhagavad Purana reveals that Krishna was the first to perform the worship of Mount Govardhan, and in so doing, teaches the key to how to celebrate life and survive as life is always lived in the theater of nature. So here we have very clearly how Krishna himself is starting this whole thing. Krishna himself is worshiping a mountain, which again, some people will say, that's, that's so primitive. You're worshiping a rock. Of course, it's not merely a rock, especially Giriraj. But also, Krishna is teaching not only the worship of Giriraj per se, but of nature as an extension of that same principle. So the, the question, just to conclude at this point, is after all that we shared today, hopefully it's clear the idea that between when we speak about material and spiritual, we have to be careful if, that we are not drawing such a strong line, like spiritual and material is, it's not, it's not that separated, if you will, as we may think in our mind. <laughs> it's not that disconnected from a concentrum. So if everything is sacred, if God resides in, if every atom is an embassy of the divine, as we have shown, <laughs> if every element of material energy is potential paraphernalia, it's the material nature itself is a Vaishnavi serving Bhagavan. How we, how we are expected to relate to that? How we are expected to respond, to connect with all the different elements of nature? So let me conclude with one more verse from the Bhagavatam. Um, it's 11.241, for those who like to check later and, and realize that I'm not lying to you. So Srimad Bhagavatam says, because how we are expected to react to the sacredness of matter, the presence of God everywhere. The Bhagavatam says, bow down to either fire, air, water, air, the sun, and other luminaries, all living beings, the directions, trees, and other plants, the rivers and oceans, seeing them as the body of the Supreme Lord. Of course, in practical terms, this not may be possible because we may spend the rest of our life just on, on the floor, which is not a bad plan. I mean, that's one angle of bhakti bandhanam. You can be eternally offering pranam. I had a very nice experience of that recently in our Govardhan Parikram. Spend one big part of your day just, just on the floor. That was interesting. But you can see here, Bhagavatam is saying, bow down and offering pranam not only to devotees, not only to human beings, not only to, to living entities, but to planets and elements, fire, water, the directions, because everything is worshipable. Again, in practice, we may not be doing that physically at every, but at least we should keep this relatively present in our mind. And everything is venerable. And that's why Mahaprabhu is saying, when Mahaprabhu said, Trinada Pisinichina Tarodha Pisishnuna Manadina, 
So Mahaprabhu is saying, offer respect to all. To all doesn't mean to all the devotees. Only. Doesn't mean to all human beings. Doesn't mean to all living beings. Doesn't mean, it mean to all, to everything. Not only to everyone, but to everything. Again, in practical terms, we know we will be walking with our heads on the floor doing pranam to everything, but at least in theory, we, we have to be reminded of that and hopefully gain some realization that everything is sacred. I'm surrounded by sacredness everywhere. Nothing is profane. The only profanity is in my own eyes, <laughs> in my lack of vision. But apart from that, I should be offering pranam. Everything is worthy of my pranam. Let's put it like that. Everything, every atom is worthy of my pranam. God resides there. <laughs> my deity is in every atom. <laughs> so, so that type of respect, that type of humility, this third verse of Shikshastakam, that's what the spirit that we have to embrace to chant the holy name, to engage in sadhana. Krishna Das Kaviraj Goswami says, if you want to attain prayam, through chanting, you have to chant embracing the third verse of Shikshastika. That will take you to the goal. If you don't chant, if you chant Trinam without embracing the third verse, Krishna that says, you can be chanting Harinam for millions of lifetimes without attaining prayer. <laughs> so that's an important point. It's not only about chanting, but how to chant. And how to chant is not only what to do while chanting, but how to develop a whole lifestyle around the chanting. This third verse of Shikshastakam is not just applicable when you are chanting Japa. That's relatively easy. Now I will go into my nice, comfortable bhajan kutir, and I will be very tolerant and very humble, but there's nobody. <laughs> there's no one to tolerate. I mean, of course, you have to tolerate your own mind and stuff, but the real challenge comes when you wake up from your bhajan, you leave your bhajan kutir, and I don't know, your wife, your boss, your husband, your baby, your everything is waiting for you. And okay, now humility, tolerance, respect, every atom is waiting for you. <laughs> I don't want to sound this like too impossible that you feel you end up feeling discouraged, but just trying to make some points so we don't lose sight of that. We don't forget about this altogether. In one sense, this in one sense, the third verse of Chikshastakam is more important than the Maha Mantra because it's the key to unlock the Maha Mantra. It's the attitude to embrace so the Maha Mantra can really bear fruit in our hearts. And we see that one very important crucial aspect here is Amani Namanadena, how to properly offer respect to everything. And everything, again, not only everyone. So in conclusion, <clears throat> Again, everything is sacred. Everything is already present here. In one sense, we don't need, as I put in my book, we don't need to go anywhere. We just need to continue to arrive. <laughs> Basically, perpetually, so to say. No, no need to go about going anywhere. Like I live to live here and arrive there. You need just to continue to arrive wherever you are. So everything is already present, but the question is, how present I am. 
everything that I need to attain full perfection is closer than anything else. But how present I am to all the things that are already present. So that's the question that we have to ask on a daily basis as sadhakas. Where I am? Where I am today? Everything is present. Krishna's presence is there. All the mercy is there. Everything is like one Srila Siddha Maharaj say that, say very beautifully, although I almost fell to the ground when I heard it. And he said, Krishna is giving all his mercy and whatever we need on a golden, how to say, tray, golden plate. Everything very generously, very. And the only thing he's asking us is a little bit of collaboration to receive the gift. Like if I want to give you the most valuable gift, and I just ask you, can you extend your hand to receive the gift? And sometimes that may be too difficult for us to do. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I will put my hand. I don't trust the giver of the gift. Not like the famous painting of Michelangelo, you have seen it, that God is like extending as much as he can, trying to touch the soul, touch us. And the, and the human is like, I don't know. Let me think about it. No, it's not open. It's not running toward that. It's not like desperate for that. It's not trusting God's extended arm. So we should reflect on all this about all the things in a humbling way and and do the needful, basically. <laughs> so anyhow, a few words I want to share today about this particular topic, which, as I mentioned, is. Uh, basically, the last chapter of my book is a, an important point that I think personally we need to understand properly as Gaudiya Vaishnav. So our tradition doesn't become a world-denying religion. And we don't conceive our practice in terms of rejection, negativity, don'ts, what not to do, but in terms of a positive engagement and embrace of everything. So that said, we have some minutes for Q&A. Before it gets fully dark, fully cold, and fully noisy again, <laughs> it's the moment. So, Anantigoranga, problem? Uh, you have a question? question. You mentioned about the renunciation. Yes. That the devotee of God is not renunciation. Um, at the same time, we see the examples of like, great uh, acharis, like the, I don't know, Gaurav Kishore Daswaraji, or such and such a devotee who, who express or show. yeah, as we mentioned, not the, the renunciation of someone like Gorky Chordavaji, which was considerable, <laughs> was extreme. <clears throat> uh, I mean, his pranam mantra is Namo Gora Kishoraya Sakshat Bairagya Mortaya. So he's the Bairagya Morti, he's the deity of renunciation. He's the Istadev of <laughs> Bairagya. So you pick a good example. <laughs> But as we mentioned, that Bhairagya comes from Bhakti. It's a byproduct of his Bhakti. You know? So he's so he's so madly in love with Krishna that that madness will play out in the form of whatever, him 
wearing just a loincloth and often eating a raw eggplant and doing all the crazy things he did. You know? And they're crazy in the sense that they come from the madness of love. I mean, Kurkishore Darbabaji is crazy, but of love for Krishna. You know? So that's the madness we want to attain. Free will basically means you choose which type of madness do you want. Uh, love for Krishna or the madness of not love for Krishna. So that's free will. Choose your madness. Pick your madness. <laughs> and Gorky Shortas Bhaji picked very deeply in one direction. And of course, that also shows Bhakti is not a sentimental, mundane, uh, mundane, sensual issue. Because you see, because some people, of course, this is a classical example, other example, we took at the Goswami. And people may say, oh, the Rasa Lila between Radha and Krishna is a mundane romantic affair. So, okay, if you say so, how can you explain that Sukadev Goswami, who had nothing to do with this world, was not attracted at all from the womb, had no contact whatsoever, felt only attracted by that, by that Lila? So we know he let when he went out of the womb to say he ran into the forest and Vyasadeva was running after him no and eventually he was not able to bring Sukadev back the only way he was able to bring back Sukadev he sent some students to the forest with and he taught them verses from the Bhagavatam so the students went to the Bhagavatam reciting these verses to the forest reciting this verse from the Bhagavatam and Sukadev Goswami became kind of like hypnotized and returned home, like following that sound. He who is not attracted by anything was attracted by the Lila of Radha Krishna, which shows that that Lila has nothing to do with something mundane. So similar to, to Gorky Shorda's biology. But, but again, his his Bairagya was a particular, it's not, it doesn't mean that every devotee has to reach has to express the renunciation at some point in that way. No? Because every devotee is different. Krishna will inspire different devotees in different ways. I mean, Bhakti Nautakur was a married person almost till his last, very last years in his life. But he was Bhakti Nautakur. So you follow my point? I mean, he was married and he was Bhakti Nautakur. That's another conversation altogether. Today we don't have time. But some of the implications of misreading this idea of matter is bad is grihastha ashram is lower, family life is bad. At some point, you have to leave the grihastha ashram and become a sannyasi. But actually, that's, Shastra says you can attain full perfection as a grihastha. See, like Srivas Pandit, Srivasangan here. He is, he's super grihastha. He has many kids and his wife and his brothers live all there and he's the host per excellence of the highest lila of gold lila which is the highest lila <laughs> the, the, the night curtains there which is the parallel of the rasa lila in gold lila so i mean in eternity none of us will be monks that's what i like i make that point sometimes i'm a sannyasi now i'm a monk <laughs> but in Golok Vrindavan, I won't be a monk. I won't be a sannyasi. In Nityanavadvip, I won't be a sannyasi. So better I don't get too attached to my saffron roads because at one point I have to let them go. 
<laughs> so it's important that we get those because if not, sometimes we get these ideas of okay, the goal of life is to be a sannyasi. No, where does it say so in Shastra? I okay, I understand the sequence of Barna Ashram, but we we have some sense of Barna Ashram, but we don't follow Barna Ashram in one sense. Krishna says, Sarva Dharma Parityaja. And Vishwanath Chakravartakur comments, Dharma there means Barna Ashram. Okay, we have, I'm not condemning Barna Ashram. I understand that it's necessary in terms of having our humanity in balance and we are engaged according to our acquired nature. That's the essence of Barna Ashram. Engage according to your nature, be a balanced human being and engage in Bhakti. But Bhakti is beyond Barna Ashram. I mean, strictly speaking, according to what Barna Ashram is, we are all outside of Barna Ashram mostly. We're all outcasts mostly. <laughs> but no problem. Mahaprabhu came to bring something that goes way beyond that. Kiva Bipra, Kiva Nyasa, Sudrakinenai, A Krishna Tattabita, Te Guru Someone knows the truth about Krishna, whether he are Brahman, Sanyasi, Sudra, outcast. For us, the name of Krishna is the main thing. And the one who represents the chanting of the main thing is Namachari Haridas Thakur. He's an outcast. <laughs> so, anyhow, I'm going to different topics. No? But the renunciation of Gorkishore Das Babaji is a byproduct of his bhakti. When one, one, one Grihasta devotee came to him and ask him advice. He said, you should offer pranam to your wife every day and worship her as a Vaishnava. So also that's coming from the personification of renunciation. No? He didn't say, you are in a dark well of family life, no? or you, I don't know, you beat your wife so she, be, she becomes tame and humble. No? I've heard those weird things many times. Now he said, you offer pranam to your wife. She's venerable for you. You follow? He's not like a fanatic renunciant about you should leave this ashram because that pure entanglement. No, he pointed at how in that particular shelter, because ashram means shelter. <laughs> so Grihasta Ashram is one shelter, Sanyas Ashram is another shelter. We are taking shelters, we are taking shelters in different shelters. It's not that one shelter is better. If it's shelter, it's shelter. <laughs> Okay, I'll repeat the question because I'm recording the lecture and I'm sure the recording didn't capture your question. So Bhagavati is asking, we are talking about Sangha Siddha Bhakti and Swarup Siddha Bhakti. We were explaining that before, no? Swarup Siddha Bhakti means activities which are by nature inherently bhakti. Even if you engage in them without knowing what you are doing, you are acquiring bhakti samskars. 
and sangha siddha bhakti means activities which are not bhakti like taking a shower and so on peeling potatoes we gave that example but can be bhakti if we engage in those as a bhakta in connection to bhakti i take a shower it's not bhakti but if i take a shower as a way of taking care of my sadaka deha, of my body as a practitioner to properly engage and say, look, that's that's no longer taking a shower. That's something else. That's another category. So she's asking regarding books that sometimes devotees write, which are mostly oriented towards self-help. So she's asking if reading those books will fit into the category of Sarup Siddhi Bhakti or Sangha Siddha Bhakti. Uh, well, I would say depending which which orientation you read them. Because, of course, let's say that someone reads the book. I mean, if you read the book as something that is directly nourishing your particip your humanity, balancing you so you can better engage in Sarup Siddha Bhakti, I will connect that with that. I mean, only, and also it's a form of reading is Shravanam, basically. I mean, studying Shastra is Shravana. Shravana means to listen, and reading is to, to check, to, to read, to, work, to look at printed sounds, so to say. It's the variety of Shravana. No? When Shastra was composed, there were not printed books, so you, you spoke in terms of listening. It was surely hearing, but eventually the sound became printed. That is an extension. So if the devotee who writes the book is a devotee, the, the devotional intention is there, and when it's writing, reading that, understanding that, it can be it can be connected to to a form of shravana, you know, and therefore to sort of see the bhakti. But at the end of the day, I will say, in one sense, it does make too much of a difference. No? I mean, it's still bhakti. You know? <laughs> of course, swarup siddha bhakti is is more is crucial in the sense of if I don't engage the main foundational angas of bhakti. I may not be able to relate everything else to Bhakti. You follow my point? Because Sangha Siddha Bhakti means you do everything as part of your Bhakti. But if you are not deeply in touch with the main aspects of Bhakti, prayer and chanting and stuff, you may not be able to connect everything else with Bhakti. I'm saying this because also we can create an excuse of, oh, I'm not chanting and I'm not worshiping, but I'm just peeling potatoes and I'm totally absorbed. In Bhagavan and whatever I'm doing, I'm whatever, playing golf and watching Netflix eight hours per day. But it's all something the bhakti. It's all connected with the lila ultimately. I'm not so sure. <laughs> How much you engage in Swarupsi the bhakti? Ah, three minutes per day. It's like I don't think so. So we can also create excuses to avoid going deep into the main aspects of bhakti, and we shouldn't. So yeah. Yeah, we could say Sangha Siddha Bhakti becomes like a natural byproduct of Swarup Siddha Bhakti. When we properly engage in Nam Kirtan, Sadhu Sangha, Bhagavat, Shravan, and so on, that will play out in practice in the form of being able to connect everything. Else. Now you need to put your volume even higher. Kirtan restarted here.
I didn't say you have to reject him. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> I say the following. I said, don't be overtly attached to that because at some point you may be in a situation or in a place like where there won't be that. Whether it is Golok Brindavan or whether it is... I mean, you don't know how the world is going nowadays. Everything may collapse at every moment, at any moment, and all technology stop working, or we will like exhaust the resources from nature with which we sustain our technology. And at one point, there may not be any more Wi-Fi. No? I remember, I think it was Albert Einstein, he said, he said something like, I don't know when World War III will come, but I know it will be with it will be performed with sticks and stones. <laughs> like implying all this technology that is coming will come to a point of collapse, and may we may be we may be back to a very primitive way of dealing with each other. Well, yeah, or let's say there is some electricity cut, you don't have Wi-Fi for a week. You should learn to be happy and live your life without it as, as we managed to do that for many years before that was there <laughs> at least us elder ones you know? right remember we were young there was no something there's nothing called internet wi-fi i remember i joined the boat since i was 19 and that was 1999 that was the beginning of an email and everything was like <laughs> Sometimes I tell that to newer devotees and, and they look at me like, what? There was no way, there was no email, there was no internet. Yeah, and we survived somehow. I managed to talk to my friends and we were managed to meet each other and survive. And yeah, that was good. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not against that. I mean, you, I'm using that. We are using that. So we shouldn't be hypocrites also like, condemning technology with cell phone here, Wi-Fi there, all these facilities. So but we should be, be detached. Detached doesn't mean reject anything. Detached means detached. I mean, I can use something, and when I cannot do that, I'm okay. That means being detached. Detached doesn't mean he doesn't have anything. It means, if, okay, I can live with that, I can live without that. Basically, that's it. I mean, at the end of the day, the whole dynamics of life unfolds and then wraps up to the point that in your last breath, <laughs> what do you have with you at that moment? So I, I, I know it's not easy, but we should gradually live our life in such a way that when we have to leave our body, we are okay. I'm not attached to the things that I'm leaving behind after leaving my body. Because if I'm attached, that's the problem. <laughs> so I should live my life exponentially. Although I may be a company from those things outside, but okay with letting them go totally. <laughs> and continue. Basically. Those things may be there, may not be there. It, it shouldn't make a difference. What should make the difference is what is always there. <laughs> and that's Krishna, basically. <laughs> I know it's not not easy to reach that, but gradually it's not impossible either.
I'm what? I'm learning to be detached from this experience. Uh -huh. But it's also a way for us to avoid dealing with the issue. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. say, oh, I'm learning to be detached. After all, I'm not this body. Yeah. 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 If I understood the first part of the question and also to to repeat it, you were referring to we being in certain situations that we may need to deal with, but sometimes we may say, I'm learning to be detached from that and we are not getting involved with that because it's painful. Well, of course, we are talking in general. We are not addressing any specific situation, but as a principle, I would say, no, it's not healthy. <laughs> That's not healthy. Because get it, getting involved with the situation doesn't mean getting attached. It means just dealing with something, taking responsibility. If it's painful, take responsibility for your pain. We have to take responsibility for everything that happens around us, including our pain. And take responsibility doesn't mean only, because sometimes we understand the word responsibility in a particular way. Take responsibility, sometimes we understand Acknowledge what you did as a cause for your pain. Okay, but also take responsibility for your pain is acknowledge you're in pain and go through that. Work with that. Coexist with that. Learn to suffer. Yeah. I mean, the goal is not stop suffering. The goal is to learn to suffer. I mean, the spirit, as, as we said the other day, in the spiritual world, there will be suffering. Don't laugh. <laughs> I mean, but that's another suffering altogether. They know how to suffer. They suffer in love. All the suffering that is happening there is in the context of divine love. So that's absolutely different from the idea of suffering we have now. So be careful of making a comparison and thinking, oh my gosh, if there is suffering there, I don't want to go there. It's, it's categorically different, ontologically different. But there is suffering. I mean, you hear the narrations of the Lila. Sri Radha is dying in separation from Krishna every single day. She's suffering. But it's not a bad suffering. It's a sweet suffering. It's a suffering that expands the heart. As I gave the example, even we can experience that in this world here now with a, 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 something like compassion. Compassion means you suffer with the other person. Compassion, every word is that, compassion. Passion is suffering, calm is with another one. So if you are compassionate towards someone, you are suffering. But it's a suffering that is expanding your heart. It's not a miserable suffering. <laughs> Do you follow my point? There is place for suffering in a way that our consciousness expands. So anyhow, going back to the question, yeah, we have to, to deal with uncomfortable situation. If we feel pain, the question is, why I'm feeling pain? I have to go through that. I have to solve that out. Again, the goal of life is not stop suffering. It's learn. <laughs> learn to suffer, learn to be happy, learn to everything. Find purpose and meaning in everything. That's the actual meaning. And I always quote Viktor Frankl here in Man's Search for Meaning. That's in important book I would recommend.
and, and he he basically developed a whole psychological system of the base of that. He suffered. He was a prisoner of Auschwitz in the Holocaust, and he was he observed this: when people stop finding purpose and meaning, they die. Their life has no meaning. <laughs> But when you find purpose and meaning, even in the midst of the worst suffering, you continue. And you can grow like anything. So that's challenging, but that's very important. Because if not, we become superficial. We get attached just to be happy. <clears throat> and we become what I call in my book, we become harmony junkies. <laughs> I want everything to be nice and fine and in harmony and beautiful. But sometimes we have to suffer. And we have to do something about it. It's not just, oh, I will pray so this suffering goes as soon as possible. Maybe you don't have to go. It doesn't have to. It has to stay to teach us a lesson. And we have to find purpose in, in that suffering. So, <clears throat> interestingly, one name for Prem is Paramartha. And the word Artha means one of the meanings of Artemis, purpose and meaning. <laughs> so Paramartha means supreme purpose and meaning, and that's synonymous with Prem. Divine love is synonymous with purpose and meaning in the supreme way. It's not about stop suffering. <laughs> you may be suffering and you are drawing so much purpose and meaning. It's nourishing your relationship with Krishna so much. Shirada suffers so much in separation from Krishna, but that pain makes her her next union with him so much sweeter. So the pain of separation informed the sweetness of her union. We could say like that. If you don't have pain of separation, you don't have joy of, joy of union. No separation, no union. If I'm always with you, there's no union, literally, because I'm already there. <laughs> Anyhow. Yeah, we, sh we shouldn't use these ideas of detachment in terms of uh, like use the word for being evasive and being like non-responsible basically yeah Maivan in the 64 qualities there is no renunciation Krishna says what Master of renunciation. I may I imagine you refer one of the six Bhagavan features of Bhagavan. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's for us. I'm talking about us. Krishna is another category. <laughs> of course, when we need to say that Krishna is one of the six attributes of Bhagavan, because we say Bhagavan is the possessor of all opulences, as sometimes it's said. One of them is Vairagya, renunciation, which is a point of making that he's, I mean, if he wants, he can be immediately detached from everything. And, and that's made especially, I mean, he's not indifferent. Again, we make that point always and over and over again. God is not indifferent. God has a conditional love for everyone and so on and so forth. 
and, and that's there. But at the same time, he's supremely independent and in certain dynamics or situations he exhibits detachment. Like for example, I mean the Rasa Lila is a famous example. Not the Rasa Lila, which is a circular dance of Krishna with the gopis. And uh, <clears throat> and again, some people may misconstrue the Rasa Lila's essential affair. So it's interesting that the very first words in the Rasa Lila, Rasa Lila are five chapters called the Rasa Panchadihai, chapters 29 to 23, 10th canto. The first verse of the first chapter of the Rasa Lila starts saying what? Bhagavan Apitaratri. The first word of the Rasa Lila is Bhagavan. So all the commentators explain Bhagavan means, among other things, he's supremely detached. So if he is engaging in this, being supremely detached, that shows that he's not doing this out of mundane attachment. So he's supremely detached from mundane attachment, basically. Let's put it like that. And many times Krishna's with the gopis, again, with the, in the Rasalila, he's with the gopis, and at some point he disappears. Surrounded by the most beautiful ladies of the whole universe. And he disappears, showing suddenly his quality of detachment. But actually, if you want to go deeper than that, Krishna is not disappearing out of detachment, but Krishna is disappearing out of attachment to Sri Radha, who disappeared first. So his detachment is always a byproduct of an attachment. That's the very word vairagya, which is very interesting in Sanskrit. One of the words for renunciation is vairagya. Vairagya. Vairagya ragya comes from raga. And raga means attachment. And by is a qualifier for the word vaishistya. Vaishistya means a very special type of. So vairagya means a very special type of attachment. But you translate the word vairagya as detachment. <laughs> like implying you can only engage in detachment as long as you have a very special type of attachment. It's basically what Krishna says in the second chapter of the Gita. When you have a higher taste, only then you can let go of the lower taste. There is detachment because there is attachment first. You follow my point? Like if I give this, if you are eating some burnt bread for the last 25 years, <laughs> you get accustomed to that. But now I suddenly come with the tally with all these new and fancy preparations. And I tell you, from now on, what do you choose to honor? And you will show detachment from the burnt bread immediately. <laughs> Before you didn't show detachment because that was your only option. You didn't have another point of reference. You, have, you, you, you engage in a higher taste. You immediately burnt bread stop existing for you. <laughs> you show other detachment. So Krishna has detachment in that sense. He's not attracted by illusion, let's put it like that, by lower taste. He always remains in that situation. So it's similar in one sense if you want to put to connect, it's similar to the type of detachment we should have. We should be detached from selfishness, from, from seeing reality in an impossible way. <laughs> That's selfishness. <laughs> selfishness. Selfishness means trying to relate to reality in an impossible way. If you are selfish, you cannot actually contact reality. It's not possible. 
So we should be detached from that. And Krishna is detached from that. Krishna is never selfish. Okay. Something else? Yes. Again, a little bit, a little bit louder, sir. So I was remembering more later or somewhere else, Srila Prabhupada was saying that Arjuna is the eternal companion of Krishna in Vikram. Uh huh. He says that similar thing. Uh -huh, similar okay, nice. Yes. Also, I want to verify one of my understanding is that I understand that we as a Jiva Tattva have been manifested from Tatnastha Sakti. So it's the fact that uh, since we don't have a relationship with God, that's why we do not go to the spiritual world. And we are here just to develop our relationship with the God. As we develop our relationship with the God, we can go back to the spiritual world. Is my understanding right? Yes, that's a long topic. <laughs> uh, but and it's not so, I mean, it's somehow related to today's topic, but it's a little bit. So I'll re reply briefly. In general, it's generally correct. But two things that came to my mind when you spoke. As you mentioned, we were manifested from the Tatasta Shakti. Uh, and again, this is a long topic. So I will just briefly mention that. And you, if you have 108 questions, we can continue talking another day. But in my first book, I wrote a lot, a lot about that. So there's no such a place called Tatasta Shakti. It's not like there is a place that we are coming from. We are Tatasta Shakti. And we are not getting money. I mean, when we say we got, we manifested, it, it seems to sound like it began at some point. But there is no beginning to that. It's not that we begin to exist. So we exist, we eternally exist as Tatasta Shakti. That will be more accurately put. And Tatasta Shakti is not a planet or a place, but it's who we are ontologically as Jiva. So that's one clarification. I'm not saying you've meant something else. I'm just clarifying. And then it's one little clarification that I know it can also be like the way some devotees express themselves, which is the word back. No? When you say we go back to the spiritual world, but we have never been in the spiritual world. And I know some devotees will have their ideas that we have, we have been, or we come from there, but that's not Shastrik. I know the Prabhupada say that a few times, but I know the Prabhupada said the exact opposite as well. And what he said, we felt from Baikuntur Golok, he said that in personal letters, email, communication, but when he, in his commentaries to the Bhagavatam, he said the opposite. There's this famous commentary in the seventh canto, he said, it is a fact that nobody falls from Vaikuntha. So that's a whole other conversation if you need further clarification. But just to clarify, because I know that he used the word back home, back to Godhead, but that doesn't mean that we, we are coming from there. Interestingly, that quote, Prabhupada took it, and I mentioned that in one article from one, what's his name, from Canterbury, this, this Christian uh, bishop or something from Canterbury, he used the expression, back to Godhead, but the way he originally used it is like, he said, we have given our back to God. So we are looking in another direction, which is the terms that are used in our tradition also, antar and bahir mok, like to 
look towards him or to give him back. So this priest was saying, we have given our back to God. So now we need to go back to him. Like to look back, not literally go back. We, and Prabhupada used that quote from him, probably with the same intention originally, but somehow I know some devotees may think, no, it means that we literally were in Golok down and we fell. But if you accept that, that comes with a lot of problems, <laughs> lots of philosophical, sedantic, and theological problems about how can someone fall from the spiritual world. That's that creates more problems than the ones you may think you are solving. <laughs> so again, just a clear. I, I'm not saying you meant that, but I'm just clarifying the detail on the word back. You know? So, but the rest, that's okay. <laughs> Or neither the point of Krishna that we are here. Just there to develop our relationship with Yeah, no need to find fault in anyone. That's that's very nicely put because generally we are very much concerned about so who is to blame for this? <laughs> and what about this? Nobody is to blame. It is as it is. And unless we accept and understand that, we will be always like conflicting and fighting with reality. Because that's the tendency of us as conditioned souls. Someone needs to be, a, someone needs to be blamed for this. <laughs> if it's not God, then it's me, and that be, can become a shame, guilt trip, that won't be very healthy. And if it's God, that's not very healthy either. <laughs> what will you do? We'll blame someone else, and you become resentful and bitter for eternity. No, thank you. So yeah, nobody's to blame for anything. In one sense, we need to accept, take responsibility for reality, basically, for who we are, for the choices we make, and move forward. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, something else. We are almost two hours, and it's getting a little darker. Almost all the light is there, but if there is any final question, if not, we can close curtain here. Yes, we'll conclude here then today. So thank you so much for your time, for the invitation here on the rooftop of Sri Mayapur. Sri Satchinandan Gaur Hari Ki Jai, Sri Harinam Prabhu Ki Jai, Sri Mayapur Dham Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Bindu Ki Jai, Gaur Pramananda Hivor, Vancha Kalpataru Yisha, Pipas Sudoke Vancha, Patita Anampavane Vityo Vaishnava Vindamo Namta Koti Vaishnava Bindu Ki Jai, Gaur Hari Hari Gaur.